Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm your host, Francesco, podcasting from the headquarters of my company, Amethix Technologies. Today I am with uh, Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman, authors of A Mind at Play, a book entirely dedicated to the life and achievements of Claude Shannon. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hey Francesco, how's it going? Really appreciate you having us. I'm doing well, thanks for having us on the show. Nice. It's a it's a pleasure because today we're going to shine some light on uh, a very interesting figure that many scientists already know or they sh definitely should know. And by scientists, I mean not only data scientists, but whoever is dealing with information theory. In fact, Claude Shannon uh, doesn't need any introduction, but for those who really need a refresh, uh, Shannon is the inventor of the so-called information age. Now, information theory uh, is, uh, in fact, measuring information, which seems kind of weird because, in fact, how can you measure something so, you know, not tangible as information? But, in fact, it is the theory behind many of the phenomena that we take for granted today. So I would like to mention just a few because, you know, I have uh, I've been at university and uh, without knowing at the time, I, I read a lot about Shannon without knowing who was the guy. And uh, today in this episode, we're going to know who Shannon was uh, from, you know, discover his personality, not only just what what he invented, what he created uh, in his career. So just to mention a few of the uh, topics and subjects that this amazing mind brought to us. Well, you know, binary code, for example, which is basically the fundamental way of uh, uh, representing numbers in in uh, computer uh, computer science. Of course, entropy in information theory, data compression theory. Uh, you know the stuff behind MP3, MPEG, the zip format, uh, the super famous Nike's Shannon sampling theorem, and then much more technical concepts like block ciphers, channel capacity, error correcting codes, n-grams, even statisticians were affected by the mind, the great mind of Shannon, the beta distribution, Shannon entropy, the uncertainty coefficient, I can go on and on. And uh, to complete the, the list, in fact, it's kind of impossible to complete this list. It seems like Shannon proposed one of the first versions of wearable computers. Uh, most, if not all such concepts, of course, are used in artificial intelligence and machine learning today. As a matter of fact, information theory includes artificial intelligence, machine learning, coding theory, and cryptography as fields of study. So now my question is very direct to you guys. You are not mathematicians, you are not computer scientists, and you decided still to write a biography of Claude Shannon. What's your problem, guys? <laughs> it's a great question, and honestly, throughout the book, uh, writing process. I think it's one that Rob and I asked ourselves while while beating our heads against a wall. Um, but you know, we I would say there's there's the the real answer, which is we found him to be a fascinating figure. As you described, his work cut across so many different fields of interest: computing and AI and coding and you know mathematics and electrical engineering. And at the same time, we also found a mind that was fertile and playful, somebody who was equally at home 
you know, inventing error correcting codes and then also coming up with a rocket powered Frisbee, uh, <laughs> creating the field of information theory and also manufacturing a flaming trumpet uh, that shot fire as you played the trumpet. Um, so I would say that's sort of the reason that we wrote about him is that we thought he was a, a very fertile, inventive mind and we wanted to learn more about him. The thing about not being computer scientists and mathematicians, it was definitely a limitation, but I would actually say that one of the things that Rob and I discovered is that because we had to try to understand his work from the ground up as non-experts, it actually made it easier for us to write the book in some ways because we knew that we weren't just writing for an audience of engineers. Uh, we were actually writing for a general audience, but we were the audience. We were the general audience. And so we had to make sense of these concepts and then distill them down so that people would understand them. And that was Jimmy. <laughs> Rob, uh, can you please introduce yourself? Like, I would like to know what's your background? I mean, Rob and Jimmy, please, uh, let's introduce yourself to the listeners of Data Science at Home podcast. Oh, sure, yeah, it's great to be on the show. Um, I'm, I'm Rob Goodman. Uh, currently, I'm a uh, professor of uh, political theory at Ryerson University in Toronto. So uh, just like Jimmy, uh, I'm not exactly a mathematician or an engineer, but of course, uh, you know, I've long time had an amateur interest in these issues. Uh, you know, before um, beginning my academic career, uh, I worked in politics as a speechwriter um, and also had a background in, uh, in journalism and, and uh, writing on a freelance basis. So uh, again, uh, my interest in uh, Claude Shannon was uh, an amateur interest to begin with. It was an interest in someone who uh, was one of the unsung heroes who did so much to shape the world that we take for granted and rely on every day and yet uh, didn't really seem to get the credit he deserved. And I came to this project as someone who had uh, a background in uh, um, writing biographies. Uh, when Jimmy and I had uh, previously written a biography of uh, Cato the Younger, who's a very different figure than Shannon, obviously. Um, but uh, we came to this project with that writing background and that interest in exploring uh, for a general audience uh, the drama of Shannon's own intellectual journey, uh, the the background that led to his uh, remarkable discoveries in the field of information theory and uh, the, the human drama that uh, shaped and informed uh, his life and the lives of the collaborators and networks around him that helped to make his work possible. Uh, so again, uh, if we can make his work accessible and interesting uh, to people who come at it with a non-mathematical background uh, like myself and Jimmy, uh, then I think uh, we've done some good work on this project. How about you, Jimmy? So I'm Jimmy Sony. I'm an author. I'm based in New York. I've done a number of different things, including some speech writing and some work in media. And like Rob, you know, I was I was just interested in thinking about Claude Shannon's story. I had read a book called The Idea Factory by an author named John Gertner, which is a great book that looks at the history of Bell Laboratories. Bell Labs is probably familiar to a number of your listeners, and it's a place that just had this incredible set of talented people and you know pioneering innovations they invented the laser they invented touchstone dialing they invented the fax machine and shannon's story stood out from within that bunch and honestly the the real story behind the book is i went on amazon and i typed in claude shannon tried to buy a biography couldn't find one and one thing led to another and rob and i decided to do the project <laughs> you definitely filled the gap i'm sure so why do you guys think that regular people should get to know Shannon? Well, I think uh, that there's almost a sort of responsibility in getting to know Shannon. I don't want to make it sound too heavy, but it's really that when we, uh, when we send uh, texts or uh, pictures on our phones, when we use the Internet, when we um, 
uh, rely on uh, data compression to um, uh, download uh, files in a uh, to, uh, zip and unzip files um, when we send information at a distance. Uh, all these things are acting in uh, Shannon's world, the world that Shannon's insights left us, uh, let alone uh, just using a regular personal computer because as a master's student, before he even got into information theory, um, he wrote uh, what's been called the most influential master's thesis of all time, which uh, laid the groundwork for uh, digital computing. Um, so anyway, what this means to us is that learning about Shannon and how he got his insights and where those insights came from, what they meant and what they did in the context of their times is really about learning about the world that we live in now. It's taking a little less for granted. It's it's recognizing that the stuff we uh, just whip, at, uh, whip out of our pockets without really giving a second thought to are, are the product of not just technical advances, but intellectual scientific advances uh, that um, accumulated over uh, decades and decades of hard work. So to understand where that came from, to understand how it was possible and the role that Shannon played in this, I think is a way of being a little more uh, present and aware of the things we might otherwise um, you know, let pass by without a second thought. That, that what is going on um, when we are able to pull out our phone and uh, send a picture to someone on the other side of the world can seem like a miracle from some perspectives, but on other perspective, it's really just the, the product of uh, a handful of people making remarkable intellectual leaps. And I think uh, anything that restores our appreciation for what we take for granted is, is valuable in that sense. That's absolutely true. Now, a guy who invented so many things uh, today, you know, if he lived today, it would be considered a nerd <laughs> or definitely, you know, one of these boring asocial individuals. But you probably didn't really find that. Is that right? No, we um, we actually have a joke that that Claude Shannon is like the the Dosecki's guy. He's like the most interesting man in the world. Um, so you know, <clears throat> I'll I'll tell a story. You started by mentioning that he invented one of the world's first wearable computers. The backstory is that he met a graduate student at MIT whose name was Ed Thorpe, and in the course of a discussion about an academic paper, Claude Shannon asks Ed Thorpe what he's working on. And Ed says, well, I have this idea for a computer that could potentially help uh, people who are gambling, you know, beat the odds uh, at roulette. And so Claude Shannon says, that's interesting. So he actually orders a regulation roulette table from Las Vegas, has it shipped to his house. Ed Thorpe moves in for six weeks and they together build a computer that can give you a slight statistical edge in the game of roulette. And so you have this you know, guy who, again, he's a tenured professor at MIT. He's the inventor of information theory. He's you know, uh, a, a brilliant mind. And what is he spending you know, two, three, four months doing but trying to beat the house at roulette? And so it turns out that this isn't the only one of Claude Shannon's interests that makes him more interesting to all of us. He was a clarinet player. He loved jazz. He wrote poetry. He would um, he played practical jokes all the time. He was a chess. He was a pretty good chess player. He was a unicyclist. He was a juggler. I could go on and on. But the bottom line is, you know, he's actually turns out to be this uh, phenomenal, multi-dimensional individual, a lot like Richard Feynman or Albert Einstein. And I think there is something to be said for exploring across different fields, for not even believing in the notion that there's these well-defined boundaries. 
and, and that's part of what I think makes Shannon's story so powerful is that he's a guy who, again, could could spend a summer uh, trying to beat the house in, in at roulette and also write you know lengthy papers about mathematics. Yeah, that's quite unusual for a scientist of that caliber, for sure. Now, my curiosity is uh, is triggering. Have you guys found out how can we drive in UK with the feeling of driving from the right side? Oh, this is a great example of just where <laughs> Shannon's mind was going when he wasn't going to information theory or uh, or robots or artificial intelligence or uh, building the earliest computers. Um, so Shannon uh, in the 70s, and this is after the period of life when he had done uh, his most groundbreaking work and, and really... Uh, I think enjoy the privileges of having uh, tenure and uh, futzing around a little bit. Uh, he got a uh, fellowship um, to go spend uh, part of the year at Oxford University. Um, so he goes over there, and of course, he's just uh, as, as many American drivers are, is uh, hugely intimidated not just by uh, the reverse process of driving on the wrong side of the road, as we would consider it, but also by how narrow the roads are and how fast British drivers seem to be going on these little tiny curves and villages. And, and as someone who spent some time in the UK. Um, I can absolutely testify to, uh, to what he's talking about. So Shannon, um, when he really should be doing something a, a little more uh, traditionally productive, decides instead to write a brief paper on how to fix this for the American driver. And he comes up with a system of uh, mirrors that will present the road to you uh, sitting in your car as if, uh, even though you're on the left side of the road, uh, you're act- you uh, feel as if you're on the right side of the road. And then he suggests, well, with a couple of simple modifications to the controls of the car, and uh, a reversing system that will make the car turn to the right when you turn to the left and so on, um, you could actually rearrange your uh, steering and propulsion system to uh, interact with this mirror system. So you would be traveling in this little American bubble feeling as if you're on the correct side of the road um, and all of your motions in the car would be translated and mapped onto the real world in which you're actually on the left side of the road. Um, No, I don't think it's actually built this, but uh, everything in there seems to be very technically sound. He he was, of course, uh, first and foremost a hands-on engineer who uh, loved to build things. So I think if he had gone to the trouble, he probably would have built this thing. And you know, dollars to donuts, um, it uh, would have worked. Uh, I think uh, we're still waiting to get the, uh, the venture capital to uh, put this into effect and see if it becomes street legal. But uh, I, I bet that if you built standard specifications, uh, it would uh, work just as he predicted. <laughs> well, I hope that someone really built this stuff because it's really annoying whenever I go to the UK. <laughs> I don't know why they just don't go with the picture. Maybe when, when Brexit happens, that can make they, that can be their uh, next priority. <laughs> yeah, that could be a nice suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I don't want to make a direct comparison with uh, you know rock star data scientists today, but you know the typical. You know, the rock star data scientist has to be multidisciplinary expert, uh, which means just to know about art, you know, artificial intelligence, applied mathematics, statistics, computer science, computer engineering. Now, this is, of course, again, I don't want to make a comparison with Shannon. That's definitely an outlier in history. But why do you think Shannon invented or studied so many things in you know, completely different domains? Is it because he was just a genius or he couldn't focus on one thing at a time? You know, this is a, an important part of his character is the ability to dip in and out of different fields. Uh, and I would actually argue that it's because he had this curiosity that couldn't be contained. Um, you know, this starts uh, very early when he's a boy. Uh, you know, he's he is a builder. He makes things. He uh, builds a ba- uh, a, an elevator in a friend's backyard in a barn that can take them up and down. You know, he helps to build a, a barbed wire telegraph system. So 
interest in though interest in something like that requires that you not just be capable of understanding the kind of theoretical elements, but also the very practical elements. When he gets to the University of Michigan, he studies both mathematics and electrical engineering. Now, there's a fair amount at the time of overlap within the curriculum, but he finds himself drawn in, in both directions. Over the course of his career, he dips into a little bit of everything. And I don't think that it was lack of focus because, for example, with information theory, he focused on that paper on the side for 10 years, right? <laughs> I think it was more that he just – there were things that he wanted to enjoy, problems he wanted to solve. He would talk about how uh, he, he, he liked the feeling of, of solving something where a problem didn't feel quite right and he would sort of go at it. It was like a, what he called a useful irritation, that he was irritated by a problem enough that he would go and try to figure it out. There were some things like the flaming trumpet where – he just suggested an idea and then had to build it. Um, there was at one point he was writing a paper on how a computer could learn to play chess, and it actually defined the field of, uh, of chess computing. And then he built a machine that could play the last six moves in a game. He called it Endgame. And so there was a way in which Shannon was somebody who very powerfully followed his curiosity. And so that led him, you know, again, into figuring out how he could fix a car in the UK so that it looked like it did in the US, and also into very serious and rigorous thinking about error correcting codes and how you transmit information. I think it was just a curiosity that he took further than maybe most of us would. I was also reading that about the Shannon mouse, uh, Theseus, the first artificial learning device of its kind, which was a magnetic mouse controlled by an electromechanical relay circuit that enabled it to move around a, a, a maze of 25 squares. And so in fact, that gave kind of, you know, initiated a number of exercises that uh, are, you know, pretty familiar at, uh, at artificial intelligence courses today. <laughs> so Yeah, so, so uh, the interesting thing about that device is, uh, one, you know, like you said, it was an early example of machine learning. It was a case in which the mouse would navigate around this uh, uh, relay course, um, uh, that this maze uh, by using a process of trial and error and after it uh, recognized the correct way to get the cheese which was a little metallic bit that uh, signified that it had reached the goal it could reproduce the same route uh, without any error so in a sense the machine actually uh, learned what to do and of course the mouse uh, itself didn't have the um, uh, the hardware in it the hardware was in the maze underneath the mouse so even though it looked as if the mouse was solving the maze uh, Shannon said it in, real in reality the uh, maze was solving the mouse so the interesting thing w was not just that uh, this was, in fact, a, uh, a pretty remarkable advance. It got a, a good deal of national publicity in the 1950s. Um, in fact, uh, probably Shannon's uh, greatest contemporary claim to fame other than the information theory paper. Uh, the other thing is it just really goes to show uh, Shannon's talent at coming up with a visual system for communicating really difficult and abstruse uh, concepts like the concept of machine learning. Um, uh, Shannon's information theory paper, as well as his uh, his work as a master's thesis, uh, laying the groundwork for digital computing, is filled with really interesting um, illustrations, both uh, um, charts of what he's talking about, and, and also illustrations that are drawn from the worlds of um, uh, language, uh, poetry, literature, all sorts of ways of of not just popularizing, but helping people without his uh, talent for math making sense of uh, what ta Shannon's talent for math uncovered. So yeah, I could say that as someone who uh, did not have the background that Shannon had, obviously, who had been to MIT, I was able to make sense of Shannon's work just because he had such a talent for 
uh, breaking it down and illustrating it with with domains that are outside the strictly uh, mathematical or the strictly engineering. And I think that talent really came to the fore in the Theseus project. Uh, you know, this was the kind of thing he got TV coverage for. And in fact, uh, one of our favorite uh, Shannon clips in which you can see him talking is a clip of him uh, demonstrating the uh, Theseus um, uh, mouse in a uh, educational segment, a promotional segment that was made on behalf of his employer, Bell Labs. Uh, and this is sort of personally important for us as well, because I think uh, Jimmy can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think once our uh, editor at Simon & Schuster had seen this video and, and seen what an interesting, uh, compelling guy Shannon was, uh, she decided it was a great idea to go ahead with this book. So in a way, Shannon was an advertisement for his own biography. That would be reinforcement learning 60 years ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, if I, you know, projected Shannon in nowadays, uh, if he had, uh, by absurd, an Instagram account, he would smoke the biggest celebrities <laughs> today. But the one thing that you guys found is that, in fact, he didn't want to be famous. So how do you, how do you guys know? Yeah, you know, he had a complicated relationship with fame, and this was one of the more interesting parts of the book. Uh, his information theory paper comes out in 1948, and almost right away, people start to treat it as a theory of everything. So they <coughs> praise Shannon, they invite him to conferences, he goes on television, he gets added to these lists of, you know, the 30 scientists to watch of this and this year. And he gets a Vogue magazine spread. I mean, he's, he's famous, uh, or at least he has the beginnings of what could be a famous scientific career. So he's put on lists with Richard Feynman, with Watson and Crick. And then sometime in like the late 50s, you know, this starts to not be that interesting to him because uh, for Shannon, what was more engaging were the questions that he puzzled around, the problems that he wanted to solve, the devices and contraptions that he wanted to build. And he actually runs away from fame. So invitations would come for him to go and speak at some conference. He would turn them down or just ignore them. A uh, university would want to give him an honorary degree. He couldn't be bothered. Um, you know, he, he accepts some limited number of invitations, often at the urging of his family because they want to go travel somewhere. But for the most part, Shannon doesn't try to parlay his scientific success into fame. And this runs, you know, very counter to our kind of modern culture in which even the slightest bit of recognition is an excuse for you to go out and, you know, get an Instagram account and join the lecture circuit and do all the things. For Shannon, it actually was interesting. He, he wanted to spend much more time building and inventing and creating things. And if the world took an interest, that was fantastic. But he wasn't interested in self-promotion in that same way. I think he was somebody who recognized his own fame, but he looked at it as kind of a funny thing. Uh, he thought it was very, he thought it was comical that, that the world would be interested in him. And I will say that even to this day, you know, his family uh, was very, I should say, resistant at first to Rob and I pursuing this biography. And it took three years for us to share details, to show <clears throat> our commitment, to tell them the kind of story that we wanted to tell. They had no interest in their father, you know, becoming somebody who would be on a poster somewhere. Um, they, they were quite happy with the life they had, and they were happy with the people who appreciated his work. But he was not someone who went out chasing fame, which ironically, I think is actually part of his appeal. Wow. So that's uh, that's something probably related to DNA. <laughs> it's a genetic uh, feature. <laughs> now, probably, you know, you guys have been asked this many times. And, uh, and you know, so far in these episodes, we already, you, you guys already talked about a lot of anecdotes about, about Shannon's life. But what is, uh, if you still have, I'm sure you do, uh, what's the most curious fact about Shannon? I would accept also something that you never mentioned in your book. 
Well, this is one of our favorites. Uh, maybe Jimmy can uh, weigh in with uh, his opinion. But uh, one of the things we did for research to this book was look through Shannon's correspondence in the Library of Congress as well as the MIT archives. And uh, we found that he had actually corresponded with L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, uh, which just cracked us up because, of course, Hubbard, uh, Hubbard is such a, uh, a kooky and in many ways a sinister figure, but that wasn't really how Shannon interacted with him. Um, it was that um, Hubbard sought Shannon out because he was one of the people who read these popularizations of Shannon's uh, information theory at the time when it was being presented as a theory of everything and uh, thought it was a terrific thing to include in his books on uh, Dianetics. He wrote to Shannon, um, uh, thanking him for his insights and uh, asking for more material and information. Of course, Shannon wrote back some admiring notes, um, thanking Hubbard for his science fiction writing, uh, which Shannon quite enjoyed. Uh, it, it's not clear from the correspondence that Shannon um, knew much or cared much about Hubbard's involvement in uh, Scientology or Dianetics. Um, but uh, even to this day, there are references to Shannon's information theory in uh, the uh, published versions of uh, Hubbard's Dianetics, you can probably get for free at any kind of uh, Scientology center. So um, Shannon probably would have resented this if he had known more about it, because in general, he resented popularizations of his work that didn't really take the science of it seriously and tried to use it as a, a guide to a life, the universe, and everything. But for the most part, uh, he and Hubbard um, had a, a really nice correspondence, which they uh, sort of mutually admired one another. Uh, that's, that's one of the things we mentioned briefly in the book, but it's just it's interesting because you know these people are uh, both active and at work at a similar time period, and you never really expect them to intersect or have anything in common. Uh, but sometimes when you're going through the archives, that's just the sort of thing that you uh, discover, and it makes you say, uh, wow, who knew? So uh, I'm glad we could at least include that note in the book. Well, I have so many questions to ask you guys, even something you know, very detailed, because you know, I'm driven by curiosity. Did he sleep at night? Like, how many hours per day did he work? Yeah, Shannon seems to have, um, it, I think it depends on the period in his life and what you're talking about. So early in life, when he graduates from his PhD program and goes to Bell Laboratories, you know, he's working pretty intensely. The war is um, just getting going. And, you know, there's some open questions about whether he'll be drafted and sent off to battle. Um, so he's working pretty intensely to try both to kind of prove his value as a mathematician and, and to con contribute to Bell Laboratories in a way that makes sure that he gets a permanent spot on the home front doing math that can help the war effort. Um, he's at the same time working on information theory late at night and on the weekends. And so our reports from that period are that he worked fairly intensely and, you know, would often um, have really late nights and then somewhat late mornings. Um, but honestly, he was not, um, he wasn't the kind of person who was a workaholic. And I don't think you could describe him as such. Uh, later in life in particular, you know, his his fame is fairly well established. He has uh, earned a couple of, of chairs at MIT and he's a tenured professor. And he basically stops going into the office. Uh, he prefers to stay at home and work in his, uh, in his what they call the toy shop, uh, what his children called, you know, dad's workshop. Um, and I would say that he wasn't the kind of person who was going to to be, you know, uh, getting up every day at the same time and going there and and being really there was no like there was no that that kind of discipline didn't suit him well. What did happen is that there would be times when he would be taken in by a problem or a question and he would just essentially become absorbed with that problem or question. And so he could he could produce huge amounts of work, but it happened in fits and starts. He actually, funny enough, had a had a folder on his desk or a file on his desk that said, 
letters I procrastinated too long in responding to. And so he, he definitely had made room for his own procrastination. When he was asked once why he didn't publish more papers, he, he said, well, I guess I'm too lazy, I guess. Uh, and so he, he had this streak about him that there was a bit of nonchalance or a bit of sort of dismissive attitude to people who were probably a little bit more focused than he was. But at the same time, he produced some of the most important breakthroughs in the 20th century. So I don't think you could knock him for, uh, for not working hard enough. Is that a, a connection that you guys found between Claude Shannon and Alan Turing? Alan Turing is another, you know, bright mind, I guess, of the same period. Right. So uh, Shannon and Turing actually did have a really interesting relationship, uh, especially during uh, World War II and the aftermath. So, uh, of course, Shannon and Turing were both involved in various capacities in the war effort. Um, um, Turing uh, working for the British government and, and Shannon working on military contracts with uh, Bell Labs. Um, uh, Shannon, of course, was involved in a uh, number of um, uh, projects related to things like uh, fire control, which is figuring out um, how to target a, a very quickly moving object and how to use uh, the principles of statistics to make sure your anti-aircraft gun fires in the right way. And also things like um, cryptography. Uh, he was part of the team that uh, helped to encrypt the uh, transatlantic telephone line that helped uh, FDR and uh, Winston Churchill uh, communicate um, secretly during the war. And Turing, for his part, uh, was, of course, uh, played a famous role in the uh, British co-breaking efforts. And a certain point was uh, in, in the 40s after uh, the U.S. entered the war was sent um, uh, across the Atlantic to study and uh, help supervise some of the American code-breaking efforts uh, and also to learn from what was going on from the American allies. So uh, Shannon and Turing, uh, when Turing was visiting Shannon's uh, workplace at Bell Labs, uh, I'm sure certainly recognized each other as uh, fellow uh, uh, mathematical and uh, scientific uh, luminaries and uh, connected over their shared interest in things like computing uh, information and artificial intelligence. Um, the interesting thing is, is that because both of their projects were classified, neither one had access to the other one's classified file, they really couldn't work talk about their uh, primary interest at the time, which was cryptography. Uh, so they couldn't talk about their work at all. But nevertheless, every afternoon uh, during Turing's visit, they would sit in the Bell Labs cafeteria and have a tea or lunch together. And uh, they just sort of allow their minds to wander over issues like uh, the future of artificial intelligence. Um, at the time, I believe, uh, there, there's a quote from Turing suggesting that, that, that Shannon tried to pitch him on his developing ideas for information theory. And Turing didn't really buy it at the time, uh, which is a sort of interesting um, what if in uh, scientific history. Uh, but the other really nice thing is that uh, they, they maintained a uh, friendship after the war uh, and that uh, Shannon and his wife went over to visit Turing in England uh, after the war ended and uh, Turing showed uh, Shannon some of his um, uh, primitive homemade uh, computer equipment, in including a uh, something that was uh, very avant-garde for the time, which was uh, using a computer to generate uh, artificial sounds from a speaker that Turing had rigged up. Uh, the interesting thing is that Turing, of course, was a famously uh, private guy and uh, didn't often invite people over to his uh, house on social occasions. So, uh, you know, the fact that he gave that honor to uh, uh, to Shannon uh, suggests that they really had a um, uh, longstanding uh, respect for one another. Well, guys, we are at the end of the episode. I'm, it was really nice to have you on the show, and uh, I really appreciate the the contribution that you guys uh, gave to, to, in fact, to many scientists and also non-scientists to let us know a bit more about uh, an amazing mind like uh, like Claude Shannon. So I really suggest a great uh, read, A Mind at Play, a book uh, entirely dedicated to the life and achievements of Claude Shannon by Jimmy Sony and uh, Rob Goodman. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. 
This episode is supported by Amethyx Technologies. At Amethyx, we love hard data problems, creative solutions, and the ability to impact the good of humanity with artificial intelligence. If you are an experienced, curious data scientist who eats pandas, scikit-learn, and TensorFlow for breakfast, be ready for challenges. We have something for you. Go to amethyxcom jobs. That's A-M-E-T-H-I-X dot com slash jobs. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.